Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Today's passage is in John 3, 1 to 17. So let's read that together. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered and said, are you the teacher of Israel? And do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, you, we speak of what we have seen, and we know and we testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how you believe if I tell you heavenly ones? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge it but that the world might be saved through him. Let's pray before we begin. Jesus, I thank you for today. I thank you for the first phase of Advent. Just a recognition of you coming. The initial excitement and the spark that lights our hearts every year. We just ask as the message that you have given me is preached today that uh, hearts be receptive, that we would be convicted, that we would uh, know you more through it. I ask that not a single word, action, or thought comes out of my mouth that is not of you in this time and that your word is shared today. Amen. I love the Gospel of John. It was probably the first uh, book I actually read as a Christian because it has a singular direction. And in this account and in all of the accounts of John, there's a single theme that is being proclaimed that salvation can only be attained to those who trust in Christ. And Nicodemus is, is no case that is different. It's actually really important for both the Christian and the non-Christian. For the non-Christian, it's your invitation, it's your uh, moment, your, your decision to come forward for it. But for the Christian, I think John 3.16 has a resemblance in us. Right? It's the bumper sticker of our faith. It's the quote that we use. When I was traveling down to visit my wife in the States, I would go through Virginia, West Virginia, Tennessee, and I had these huge, huge highway uh, signs on the side of the road that would say, John 3.16, or you're going to hell, or something like that. It would be like a damnation clause. But it's kind of a verse that we've embedded within ourselves, and I think that in a way it's created a kind of apathy towards it. We're so familiar with what it is that we lose the actual intention and the meaning behind it. There's an interesting study done on this, actually, between uh, expertise and pride. 
It's called the uh, Dunning-Kruger effect, and it was a 1999 paper by Justin Kruger and David Dunning about ignorance blinding ignorance and incompetence blinding incompetence. And the study was to show that the, those who think highly of themselves don't know that much. But what they actually got was almost, uh, well, affirming but reversal. They were expecting to see lower educated individuals think that of themselves, but it was different. Because the ones with the lowest education score test similar to what they gave themselves before the quiz. And it was the same. So the whole quiz was about grammar, mathematics, science, various means, humor, even inside of it as well. And those with the highest education, those who were, who were doctorates, who were tenure professors, they were grossly different from their actual test results. And I think that reveals for us in our human condition, the more we are familiar, the more we are affirmed in these rhythms and the patterns of our life, it results in a greater apathy of ignorance. We can lose the actual sight of our intention here. And reading this a couple months back actually really shocked my worldview because I think as a Christian, the more we grow, the more we become too familiar with these themes, especially in John 3.16. But branching from there, what assumptions have you made about your faith? What assumptions have you made about Jesus? Is he someone that you see as completely attainable to anyone who comes to know him, or is he fixated on your own worldview? Because as we grow, we make, um, we make these assumptions more and more. And I think it's important to come back to simple verses like these that really ground us back into our faith. And our passage today is John 3, 1 to 17. And Nicodemus is a great starter for this. And I love the way he writes because John is very thematic. He's very uh, cinematic in the way that he portrays Jesus. It's not like Luke and uh, Mark. They're very documentarian, but... John is more of like a Martin Scorsese. He's really giving us uh, the action forefront to see a Jesus that is drawing people to him. John is writing to everyone. He's not just writing to a specific sect or group or motion. So who is Nicodemus? It says in verse one, he was a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews. A Pharisee was, um, if you're not familiar, was a social movement of rabbinic Judaism during the time of the Roman Empire. The school of thought really emphasized legalism. It emphasized high law. And the word itself derives from the Greek pharisaios, which actually means one who is separated. And they were. Time and time again, throughout the Gospels, we see that these people separated themselves from the crowd, from sinners. That's why they despised Jesus for associating with them. They were separate from the people. And it also says that he was a ruler of the Jews, which means he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And if you're not familiar, the Sanhedrin was a high Jewish order among the Pharisees, and at this time of Jesus, there was a, around approximately, a lot of scholars point to about 6,000 Pharisees. There was 71 members of the Sanhedrin. Politically, they could appoint their kings, they could declare wars, they could expand their lands under the vassalage of Rome. Religiously, they could institute laws, rituals, and execute justice for teachers and rabbis, which is why Jesus was tried before them. And Nicodemus is one of the 71 in the Sanhedrin. And I think what's important to note before we really get into it is that Jesus did not hate Pharisees. I think that's a common misconception that he completely despised them, put them away, but he felt deep sorrow for them. They were deeply lost. They enriched themselves off the backs of widows and orphans. They preached faith, but they converted for works. They held tightly to the law, but they didn't know mercy, justice, or genuine intimacy with God. They taught of God, 
but they did not know him. And in Matthew 23, Jesus says that they are the ones who literally shut the kingdom of God on the very faces of men. Nicodemus was one of the 71 of the Sanhedrin. He was, if anyone, he was the creme de la creme in Jewish piety and prestige. He was not just a guy that popped in to see Jesus that night, but he was someone devoted, someone who, who dedicated years of his life to this, to the knowledge of God. In verse two, it says Jesus, or Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. And if he's this great figure, he's, he's bound in understanding, bound in knowledge, why would he come to him alone in the dark? There was a young man who was a lighthouse tenant in his mid-20s. He was, uh, if you don't know what a lighthouse tenant is, I'm pretty sure most people do. They essentially associate and oversee the manifest of ships going on day to day and oversee the lighthouse itself. But every day he would wake up, he would fish, he would do his checks, have a coffee, and repeat. He did this for years and years and years until one foggy morning a ship ran onto the shore. Eight crew members died and the ship irreversibly damaged. When he was interviewed to determine the cause and effect of what exactly happened, he went through his whole list of things he would keep account of for each and every single day. The wiring, the cleanliness of the bulb, the uh, calibration of the control arm, but because the page that he had associated with had faded over time, the bottom two markers we're checking for the luminance of the bulb and changing if under 30%. For years he drank coffee, for years he fished, for years he did a few checks, but he missed the one thing that he was supposed to do. Now Nicodemus is a man who was surrounded by knowledge and wisdom and yet he does not understand the kingdom of God, the whole purpose of his life. And like the man in the lighthouse, years have gone by for him in ignorance and his own apathy but it came to a full stop because when a young Jewish rabbi came into town preaching about how the kingdom of God is here and now, that it is attainable to all men, he approached him. And Nicodemus must have realized this gap in his life when he heard this message. As the more he studied, as the more he practiced, so did the gap between his mind and his heart. As he grew in stature, so did his insecurity. As he grew in fame, so did his crippling ego. And this is evident, I think, from every facet of our world. The more famous someone becomes, the more isolated they are. Unless there's like 10 bodyguards around them, but I don't really think that counts. It's something that I think is, is uh, really eerie about Nicodemus' life. He must have been someone who just felt enclosed to himself. And I think this unease and his ignorance and his isolation broke him, bringing him to Jesus in the quiet of night on his own to be fully vulnerable with the man whose claims change the world. I think Eugene Peterson put it best and way better than I ever could, but he said that Nicodemus was not looking for a theological answer or information about the kingdom of God, but wanted a personal invitation from a friend to show him the door and say, come with me. Isolation and ego are the crutches to a kingdom-filled life. And I think all of us in here walking through those doors have known hurt, have known pain, have known trauma of some kind, you name it. But regardless of what you've entered with, your community, the people around you, they're here to love you and care for you. And not only them, but God too. He desires a greater intimacy than that that you can have in a marriage or a best friend. He desires to know you at the deepest person of who you are. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus in this uh, initial part of the passage, Nick, you've been an observer for far too long. And he doesn't understand. 
Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus, I think initially Nicodemus gave him a a compliment that was sort of, we know that you're doing acts of God, God must be with you, but Jesus completely pivots it and says that he needs to be revived and reborn. In verse five, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh and flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Jesus uses what only Nicodemus would understand. I think to us, we're thinking, uh, you know, baptism, water baptism, I think those are fine. But for for Nicodemus, this is life-changing. Because for rebirth, that phrase, it literally means children newly born. In the ancient Judaism, non-Jewish converts were referred to as this. They were referred to as new people in rabbinic literature. There were baptism, water baptism was not a new practice that started with John the Baptist, it was something that was used previously, used exclusively for Gentiles converting into Judaism. And symbolically, it showed the dying of one's heritage and identity to come alive in the redemptive ark of God's people. Individuals who were referred to as new people or who were baptized in water were not seen the same as those who were born into the family of God, into Israel. They were seen as lesser-born citizens. And Jesus is talking to one of the 71 members of the Sanhedrin. And he is saying to him, among the most elevated in the Jewish sects of cultural prestige and piety, saying, Nicodemus, if you want to be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven, you need to be like them. You need to be the lowest in society, the marginalized, the immigrant. And he's saying to him, you need to bear off the robes that you've entered here with. Your title, it doesn't mean anything to me. You can't use that as your comfort. And the religiosity that you hold to can no longer be your anchor if you want to enter the kingdom of God. In order for Nicodemus to become a son and heir in God's kingdom, he must become nobody to the world. Our hope in that being in the kingdom of God and for Nicodemus is not that everything will go okay or things that happen to us are the will of God. But our hope is that no matter what comes to us, good or bad, Jesus is back from the dead. And he is our Lord and our shepherd. And nothing can penetrate that relationship. Verse seven to eight. It says, do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you come and, oops, sorry, just skipped two lines. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound. But do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. In my mind, Nicodemus is lost here. His whole worldview is just rooted upside down. Jesus has said, you have to be the lowest in society to come to know the kingdom of God. He would have been completely shattered. And in seven and eight, the words wind and spirit are essential for us today. Because wind, breath, and spirit, they all have the same meaning in the Greek and the Aramaic. The Greek was what John wrote in, but the Aramaic is what Jesus spoke in. And in the Greek, the word is ruach. I did this with the youth on Friday, but I want everyone to say it with me. Let's do it together. Three, two, one, ruach. Good. What Nicodemus is saying to him is that the ruach, Nicodemus, the ruach that gave Adam his consciousness, the ruach that made the dry bones of Ezekiel lift, the ruach that that lifted the waves for the freedom of Israel in the Red Sea, the ruach that seeded the waters for Noah, He's applying what the Spirit is to him. 
something that cannot be controlled. And for Nicodemus, someone who only knew what the control was through his prayer, through his worship, that would have been breaking for him. He's speaking to him in his own language and challenging his understanding of the nature of God. The wind blows where it pleases, and that's not just a rustling tree in the wind or one of those bags you see in the videos that goes from like a street down to the ocean. But the wind was a tool. In the ancient world, it helped facilitate trade, travel, and war. It propelled ships, and it kept them at docks. Like early Roman Empire, like people would know this, like their history was based around being able to have naval combat. And Jesus is using this and saying, while you may not be able to control the wind, there is a purpose behind it. Remember the disciples on the boat. Who is this man that controls the wind and the waves? Or in 2 Peter, in the description of prophecy, as man speaking from God as they are carried by the Holy Spirit. John's gospel shows this purposely throughout the entire book. And there's another word that's really important for us today as well. It's called parakletos. And it's a very specific word found only in the gospel between 14 and 17, John 14 to 17, in the upper room discourse, all referring to Jesus and the spirit of the Lord. And he says it only five times. And parakletos is only found in these three chapters and nowhere else in the whole Bible. And the word literally means one that comes alongside to help. And the word is actually still used today. In Greece, if you are uh, um, inquiring upon a defensive turdy, you are called a paraclias, paraclios, but it's a direct derived from that word. And if you're stranded off coast and you would need a help or an aid, you would call in for a paraclete, a boat to come fish you and take you off if you're a wayfarer offshore. The one that comes alongside to help. The Holy Spirit is not just a random entity, but a living and purposeful being to come alongside you in times of need, especially when you feel flushed out, especially when you have no words to say, but why? And maybe when I say that, it feels like he's not present, or your reaction to that is, yeah, but God doesn't really have time for me, or I can handle this, I got it on my own, I don't need to bother him with that. But please hear me when I say this. You do not need to carry your life on your own. You have people around you, and you have the Holy Spirit to help and to be a comfort to you. Jesus is directing Nicodemus to see this act that cannot be done on his own. I don't know if you guys are into memoirs. I'm not. <laughs> but I did it for one, uh, did it for the sermon today. But I was looking through uh, various stories, and one that came across me uh, was Augustine. And as far as you know, Augustine is one of the great early church theologians for us. He's a founding, I would say, a founding member of our faith at what we believe today. And this one story goes that. Augustine, every single day, he would walk up and down a beach. He would go back and forth to uh, pray for peace and calm and that the Holy Spirit would embed himself uh, inside of him and that he would just know Jesus, a place for peace. And one day, he saw a boy running from the shore to the ocean, the shore, the ocean, the shore, the ocean. And he goes up to him and he says, my son, what are you doing? And the little boy with a clam in his hand shows he's like, I'm taking all the water from the ocean and scooping it into this hole. And Augustine says very calmly, that's what it says in the book too, very calmly he said, my son, you are not going to be able to fit all the water that exceeds this land into this tiny hole. Kind of a buzzkill, my opinion, but that's okay. And the little boy shoots up, strays an arrow, and he turns to Augustine 
And he says, and neither can you understand the majesty of the Almighty within your own mind, no matter how intelligent you are. And at that, the boy was gone. Augustine blinked, and he was vanished. And upon retelling the story, he believed that he had saw an angel. And scholars debate the story on whether it's, um, whether it's allegorical or literal, but regardless, I think it gives a grave nature to the disciple of Jesus that we must face. Because no matter how intelligent we become, no matter how familiar we are with our own faith in, in praying daily, serving, and reading your Bible, the way God forms and works in us is a mystery. And the way he works in this world is a mystery. It cannot be determined, studied, or prodded, but it can only be experienced. And I think this message is timeless for Nicodemus and also for us. You know, Nicodemus was seasoned in understanding, a man brought up in stature, that believing a person could be saved by their own works and adherence to the law of Moses when salvation was sitting right next to him, saying, come with me. Verse 9 and 10. Nicodemus says to him, how can these things be? I just lost my place, if you didn't see that. Nicodemus says to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Nicodemus goes back. He says, how? Multiple times. How? 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 And scholars generally agree that at this point in the conversation, he's done. He's pulling out. Nicodemus has just has worldview completely shattered, and Jesus is toppling on. He's adding more. And Nicodemus is saying, like, hold up, please. I, I don't think I can do this. He keeps going back to the same script, the same action, to see if something will fit with his understanding. Please don't come after me if I get this wrong. But there's a study in the scientific method called replication. And I have a friend of mine who actually does this uh, in Ontario. And, what he does, he's been doing this for about eight years now, is that he's been repeatedly doing the same thing over and over and over again to uh, affirm a theory. He's been working on bee poop, so that's fun. But the whole, whole, whole purpose of the study for eight years have been determining how bee fecal matter is used as a way to ward off wasps and other various insects penetrating a hive. And we're moving into the winter of 2024, and I asked him a couple of weeks ago, because I wanted to use this. He's like, yep, yeah. he's like, I'm still doing the same thing. I was like, how is that possible? Like, you guys, like, there's money being poured into this, like, probably over a million dollars a year into your team, like, what are you doing different? He's like, ah, not too much. He's like, we're just varying the test slightly, but marginally that you would never be able to notice. He said that we're trying to place what our, we're trying to place our hypothesis into our tests. We're trying to make it fit. He's running the same tests over and over and over. And obviously Nicodemus is not a Guelph grad. He doesn't uh, test on beef fecal matter. But he is running this same episode. He's, he's been exposed and he's having to go back to the same rhythms he knows. He's using his deduction to break down the argument that Jesus is presenting to him. How, how, how? And again, Jesus is not angry, I don't believe but he feels sorrow for him. And he says, you are what teachers of Israel are. This is the best that Israel has. This is who they listen to. From here, we are given a single discourse for the rest of the uh, passage with them. And Jesus is laying out all the cards. He is showing his hand and he's prompting him with a verdict, a decision. 
And comparisons are being made here in verses 11 to 17. Let's read it together. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify and what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descends from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten Son, that whomever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And there's various comparisons being made throughout this whole dialogue, earth and heaven, flesh and spirit, Nicodemus's way and the way of Jesus. Jesus is showing what he has to gain, what Nicodemus has to gain, and what he has to lose. There's a comparison of what is actually being won here. And again, this whole passage is proclaiming the singular message that salvation can only be attained to those who trust in Christ. And Jesus goes right for the jugular in these verses. I absolutely love it because that's how he operates. And at a single point, he's like, yeah, but here's the truth. He's saying, remember what happened to the people of Israel, how they turned on God, how God saved, and to those who believed. In both John 3 and Numbers 21, where he's referencing, death is threatened as a punishment of sin. And God himself is the remedy. And all those that look upon the one that will be lifted shall be saved. And that is the verdict. That is the clause putting forward. The choice to all those who are called to be apprentices under the king of kings. Will you be like Nicodemus? Someone who is running the same motions over and over and over again, hoping to have a different result. Or will you live in freedom? Will you live in something that's real, something that is ever enduring in your joy and your compassion for the world? And you might say the right words in here and you might do the right things. And people may even say of you, they've been a member of this church for X amount of years, they come to church every week, or I've, I've seen their Bible, it's really beaten up. They must know Jesus really well. These do not save you. Reading your Bible, coming to church, doing all you can, will not save you. Doing what you can cannot save you, but surrender, surrender of it all to become a child of God will. And you have people around you here who want to support you in that. And you have a God who loves you so deeply that wants to know you and meet you there. We must surrender and do it actively, keeping our minds more on Christ and what he did for us rather than on our own comparative reputation with others. Serve and lay down your life, absolutely. But do it in love of Jesus rather than seeing what the person next to you is doing. Serve a high king that is ever present in every moment of our lives, who will not abandon us, whose, whose joy is ever abounding, whose peace is ever abounding, whose love is ever abounding for you. Something that you will never attain here on earth. Friends, will you be stagnant like Nicodemus or will you walk in freedom? Because the son of God has risen from the grave and he wants to know you. Jesus, I thank you for this message that you've really put on my heart. I thank you for the life of Nicodemus and the accounts that we see with him, God. I just 
ask that we would, um, we would reflect upon his words, upon Jesus' interaction with him, and we would look upon our own life to see what we can change, what we can do differently. We ask that you'd be with us today, that you'd be with us in this season, and that you give us peace for the rest of the week. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.